even for folks who don't listen to a lot of commercial radio, the reality is that commercial radio has a lot of social power. And so we're all impacted by it. Our broader society is impacted to it, even if we're not consuming it ourselves. So, you know, if there's this incredible gender disparity on like what kind of music gets played on the radio, that has implications for like what kinds of voices are taken seriously in our broader political and social discourse. Even if you're not a commercial country fan, I think that our nation's politics are impacted by the fact that country radio is so, commercial country radio is just super sexist and, and male dominated. This researcher, uh, Jada Watson from the University of Ottawa, has studied this and gotten in depth on the problems of women being heard in country radio. And, and, and we looked deeper at her research and some, some charts data and found that after a, nine country radio stations that used to be owned by CBS, they were bought by Entercom, that when consolidation happens, we found fewer and fewer songs get played and fewer of them are by women. And that's a problem. If we, if we are able to have conditions of diverse ownership, that creates conditions where playlists can be broader and the viewpoints, both news viewpoints, but viewpoints as expressed through entertainment, can be more diverse as well. Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Reesmandel, and with us from San Francisco is... Jennifer Waits. Hi, everybody, and I'm Eric Klein. And today we're going to be talking about radio ownership. It does come up every so often here. Like uh, a broken record. Like a broken up. record, and, and that's a good metaphor because what we're talking about is how radio ownership impacts music and musicians and the music industry. We're talking about both independent artists or artists on small labels all the way up to the biggest of big artists who get lots of airplay and who are in stadiums and in arenas because uh, right now it turns out the radio industry, the National Association of Broadcasters is asking the FCC to make some pretty radical changes to ownership. And there's a coalition put together of organizations that represent artists in the music industry that are asking the FCC not to do it. And, and, their, and their campaign is called Keep Local Radio Local. Yeah, so here on Radio Survivor Today, we spoke with Kevin Erickson, director of the Future of Music Coalition, about these issues. So, Kevin, why do we think that local radio right now is under threat again? Why is there a need right now to try and preserve local radio? Well, so every four years, the Federal Communications Commission, the government agency that's tasked with regulating all of our communications infrastructure, including radio, looks at its ownership rules. And um, this time, they have, uh, they're, they're evaluating a proposal from the National Association of Broadcasters that would radically weaken the ownership rules that exist right now. That proposal... Um, would allow one company to own every commercial radio station in a market if it's in any of the markets outside of the top 75 markets. Um, and in the top 75 markets, it would allow a single company to own as many as uh, 
10 radio stations. And, and so when you talk about these top markets, for, for people who aren't familiar with that sort of terminology, you're talking about like size, like like in the way that like New York right. is the number one market. because New York the is the number population. one market, yeah. exactly. What's the 75th? I don't know. I know that my home, my hometown, Yakima, Washington, is number one hundred and ninety nine, and so and so like that's an easy way for me to think about it. Which is, I mean, and that's interesting to me that you know some of there are some bigger markets that are also in that category, like El Paso, Texas, and Charleston, South Carolina, and Wilmington, Delaware. Right. Well, it impacts the um, the bigger markets too. So any any of the markets uh, right now that um, so the current rules right now are are varied based as like the more stations that there are in the market, the um, it's tiered. So there's like a cap, and then it moves up up to um, eight stations at the very top tier can be owned by a single company. So even in big cities, it would mean more consolidation. It's the smaller cities where it gets really extreme and it becomes possible for a single company to own every station. They throw out the ownership cap completely. And what are the limits right now? If if you're in a city with up to 45, if more than 45 radio stations, currently a single entity can own up to eight. So in like a in a city with like 15 to 29 stations, a single company can own up to six. Um, in a city with 14 or fewer stations, a single entity can own up to five stations. Wow. So in effect, what's happening here is that the National Association of Broadcasters is asking the FCC to allow companies to own as many as 10 stations in, in large markets. And then when we get outside of large markets to have, an, have no limits whatsoever. And that is, and, and in many ways that's unprecedented because even though the limits were raised radically back in 1996, um, there are still limits. <laughs> there's still a, a, a situation in which, let's say iHeartRadio cannot own every single radio station in El Paso, Texas. And and the proposal that the NAB is making would permit that to happen. Do I get this correctly? Correct. And so why is the Future of Music Coalition concerned about this? Um, because you're there as an advocacy group for musicians, correct? Uh, why, why is radio on your radar? Well, so we've been involved in, the, in this um, for... I think at least 12 years now, um, actually, no, but as far back as 2002, um, uh, we've been involved in this since 2002 because radio uh, and local radio is just really important to musicians. It's an important way that we're able to reach audiences. And uh, since those changes in the 1996 Telecommunications Act and the different waves of consolidation that we've seen since then, on the commercial side of radio, we've we've seen more and more new barriers to access to the airwaves for local musicians, and the kind of diversity of programming um, that musicians rely on and communities, music communities re- rely on, really replaced by centralized playlists um, made by out-of-town programmers, you know, firing all the DJs, replacing them with robots. And so anywhere that we've been able to 
you know, since 2002, we've, we've tried to uh, do original research that documents these problems and, and share them with policymakers to, to see if there are ways we can stop this, uh, from, this problem from getting worse. Um, and, um, and, you know, so when once again, we, we've seen this m most recent and really most, the most radical uh, deregulation proposal in radio that we've ever seen, it, it was clear that it was really important for us to to step up and uh, make sure that the the music community's voice is heard on this. I wonder, you know, given how much consolidation has happened in the last you know twenty plus years, is radio still playing a vital role? I mean, commercial radio in particular. In breaking artists, I mean, part of me wonders: is is the is the horse already out of the barn here, or or does it still? Are is commercial radio still helping to to break new artists and break new music? Is is do we still? Is there still something left there uh, to guard to guard? Well, radio is still the number one um, area for music discovery. Um, but that's changing. I mean, it's it. There are shifts away from that happening right now. We feel like the, the radio still has incredible potential because it's live and local, um, or at its best, it's live and local, and has an, an ability to speak to the needs of specific communities and elevate the concerns of uh, specific communities in a way that other mediums can't necessarily. You know, that's why we're so passionate about the work, the great work that's being done in non-commercial radio and community radio and college radio, uh, because they're able to um, elevate the cool things that are happening in local community, local music communities. Um, but we don't want to give up on commercial radio because we think that potential is still there. Um, the problem is that the the these waves of deregulation one after another um, in so many ways not just the ownership rules have incentivized business models that encourage centralization and so we have fewer and fewer companies um, controlling what communities are able to ac access um, you know and it, it doesn't just hurt musicians I think it's it hurts communities because of the loss of access to local news um, local information um, and then it hurts them in terms of the the loss of viewpoint diversity, uh, because mm -hmm. you know if you own every radio station in a city, it, that means that you can control what um, points of view people hear about what's happening politically, what's happening in local politics. It's especially acute too because radio is um, over indexes, I guess you could say with uh, low-income communities, uh, with communities of color, uh, people who don't necessarily have access to high-speed broadband internet because we still have big disparities of access. There's this huge challenge with the digital divide. Um, so radio remains really important for a variety of public interest reasons, but that all is at risk of being lost to more consolidation. And thinking about musicians and music specifically, 
you know, I mean, you, you mentioned how with consolidation, we've seen this centralization where playlists uh, maybe develop more regionally rather than in a local town. So what's getting played on your local uh, rock station or contemporary hit radio station sounds a lot more like what's played in another market um, and where often, you know, the hosts are not local either. Um, can you kind of put more of a, 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 a you yeah, know, but this is the way it's been for a long time, you know, and, 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 and I don't wish to defend it at all. <laughs> That's not really my point. I'm, I'm trying to see what, what what is an alternative maybe in commercial radio or if there are extant alternatives. Do you see examples right now of commercial stations which buck that trend or are the sort that you would like to kind of you would like that model to be preserved and not undercut by by further consolidation where owners might the pressure on owners might be too great to resist. I mean, is that is something commercial radio worth saving in 2019? Right. Or, or are there commercial stations, let's say, you know, that we would want to defend right now? Well, absolutely. I mean, I think we we and we hear from them. Some of them um, have filed their own comments in this docket um, because um, because, you know, like it isn't as if the entire broadcast industry, even on the commercial side, is on board with these changes even among the membership of the National Association of Broadcasters, there's a lot of broadcasters who think this is a bad idea. Um, it's challenging, though, because they are under these commercial pressures to take fewer and fewer risks to right. um, move, the, move the direction of consolidating their resources outside of, outside of the communities that they're embedded yeah. in. Um, do, do you have, I mean, are you able to cite any examples? I know I'm asking you, you to, you know, oh, um, uh, not off the top. I mean, if, if I went, if I went into well, the I'm docket right. and go ahead. Yeah. I'm just thinking about, um, a number of things that you're speaking about. And, and I think about some of these locally owned stations that are in really tiny markets who, uh, who are sort of like a community radio station in a way in that if you're in a very small isolated town, and you're a locally owned commercial radio station, you're probably providing news coverage of, um, you know, breaking news um, when there's a disaster, like a wildfire, for example. And it seems to me that those stations, that would be worrisome in this scenario where you might have unlimited ownership limits in these tiny markets. And, and, and what does that mean then for these kind of mom and pop stations um, does that place more of a threat on a large group from outside the community coming in and just buying up all the stations there? Yeah, yeah. You know, the broadcasters claim that if they're able to um, uh, grow the station group so, so you have common ownership, well, that will free up resources for them to invest in more like local news coverage and, and local entertainment coverage. But, you know, that's just not what we've seen as we've seen this wave after wave of consolidations. It's the it's the handful of independent stations that that are left that are making those investments that are taking those kinds of creative risks that are um, investing and in, in staying attentive and responsive to the things that are happening in their communities. Yeah, the way we saw consolidation play out in the years following 1996 when the ownership limits were first uh, greatly raised and when the national cap was eliminated um, is 
you know, the pressure puts on an independent is that your competitors consolidate. And usually through consolidation, right, part of what happens is they consolidate uh, physical resources, studios, staff, or whatever. They cut costs. That tends to raise profits. What that also allows them to do, it allows them to change their pricing on advertising. And so what, what independents find happens is that they see cost pressure going down on the cost of advertising in their market where an advertiser might be able to reach people on three or four stations for the price of what their one station charges in advertising. And so they're forced to to compete, slowly reducing their bottom line until it becomes better or easier to sell in the face of that than it does to continue operating. And that's kind of what we saw play out in the years following 1996, with really the only bulwark against that being the fact that there were still caps in any given market uh, where someone can only operate so many stations or in many smaller or more rural places, uh, it was the case that, um, you know, that the large owners didn't see those markets as very uh, viable unless they could have, you know, half the stations most, you know, have monopoly control nearly. Well, we're on. This is Radio Survivor. That's the voice of Paul Reese Mandel. My name is Eric Klein, and Jennifer Waits is also here. And we're on the line with Kevin Erickson, director of the Future of Music Coalition. And we're talking about um, proposed rules changes at the FCC that the National Association of Broadcasters is requesting that would. <laughs> I, it's the same old song. I can't believe we're back here again. Am I. Am I in a time warp, or am I having nostalgia for the 90s, or are things getting worse, but they just echo how they sounded in the past? We're, we're changing the, we're, we're lifting the cap yet again on, it is, every, every three-ish years or so we well, have the well, same Well, they haven't been touched, but yeah, they keep talking about it. It's oh, because okay. the, uh, yeah, so they've been rough, in radio, they, the, the caps have been roughly the same since 1996. Wow, we just keep uh, worrying about it every Because it years. comes up every, well, in the FCC, as we've talked with Professor Christopher Terry, has barely done due diligence right. on these ownership rules. Um, and on top of that, though, there's rule changes like they got rid of the local studio rule. That's so, always an exciting yeah. conversation with Dr. Christopher Terry, where we discover that uh, it, it sounds like to hear that expert uh, opinion of, of how things are run at the FCC is they, they try to get away with lifting these caps, but they, they can't get their ducks in a line to actually win in court to lift the caps. So, Kevin, I wanted to kind of follow up a little bit on this, you know, talking again about musicians you know, and, 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 and a healthy sort of music economy. And I wonder if, you know, you have, if you can think of any examples of, you know, artists in the last, you know, say few years who, who've broken because of radio or at least helped along. Right. I mean, we have multiple channels now, but it seems as though there must be some artists who are finding their audience do at least in part by radio. Uh so it's easier for me to think of examples um, in the non-commercial radio space. Um, it varies from hmm. uh, it varies from genre to genre, though. I think radio is especially important in country music. Commercial commercial radios are especially important in country music, and yeah. um, uh, you know, and that's one of the reasons that in uh, in talking to the FCC about this issue. We've tried to draw their attention to the fact that when consolidation happens, we now have evidence that they end up playing a narrower playlist of music. And so there are fewer opportunities for musicians to get airplay. Um, 
you know, like the fact is, even for for folks who don't listen to um, a lot of commercial radio, the reality is that commercial radio has a lot of social power. And so we're all impacted by it. Our broader society is impacted to it, even if we're not consuming it ourselves. So, you know, if there's this incredible gender disparity on like what kind of music gets played on the radio, that has implications for like what kinds of voices are taken seriously in our broader political and social discourse. Um, you know, so even if you're not a commercial country fan, I think that our nation's politics are impacted by the fact that um, country radio is so commercial country radio is just super sexist and, and male dominated. Um, this researcher, uh, Jada Watson from the University of uh, Ottawa has studied this and gone, gotten in depth on the problems of um, women being heard in country radio, and 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 we looked deeper at her research and some some charts data, and found that after um, Entercom, uh, after a, nine country radio stations that used to be owned by CBS, they were bought by Entercom. Um, that th- during that time. Um, there, you know, when a group of country stations, um, when, when country, let me, let me step back and just say this in the broadest, most baseline terms. When consolidation happens, we found fewer and fewer songs get played and fewer of them are by women. Um, and that's a problem. And, you know, if we, if we, are able to have conditions of diverse ownership that that creates conditions where playlists can be broader and um, the viewpoints, both news viewpoints, but entertainment, but viewpoints as it expressed through entertainment can be more diverse as well. Um, or at least just something closer to equity. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, and I think that that, that that provides a good example, I think, right there um, for thinking about uh, for, for the commercial side. And I'm, and I'm thinking a little bit about the non-commercial side, too, here, which you've cited, in, you know, as, as having tending to be more local and more open to new artists. How would raising these ownership caps and, of course, eliminating how many, the cap on how many stations someone could own in a small market like El Paso, Texas, or um, Stockton, California, or Stockton, California. How would that affect non-commercial stations? You know, I think we have this tendency to think, well, consolidation is just a commercial radio problem. But do you think that non-commercial stations would be under threat too? Well, I think that one of the one of the things that happens when commercial radio is so repetitive and uh, risk averse is that audiences that are looking for interesting, risky, and diverse programming tune out from radio and go go elsewhere, um, uh, go to digital. And so, you know, I think that it, um, it imperils the entire medium for, for radio to be this bad and getting worse um you know as so are you much- saying that commercial radio is sort of a gateway to non-commercial radio for listeners <laughs> 
Well, I think that, yeah, to the extent that, like, you want to make sure that the radio in your car is working. You want to make sure you've got a tuner set up and, and co- hooked up to your stereo at home. Uh, it's, I, I think that there's not, there's um, incentives to, like, make sure that you're, that you just got the basic techno- technological capability. But beyond that, um, I think that there's also, like, um, some marketplace dynamics at work. It's like non-commercial radio stations aren't in the advertising sales business. Um, well, but, sort of. But they are in the <laughs> underwriting business. Right, exactly, yeah. Right? And um, the, the kind of downward pressure that more and more consolidation puts on advertising marketplaces does impact non-commercial stations and their ability to obtain underwriting support, and especially from local businesses. You know, you know, Kevin, I'm 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 very moved by your argument that when you know commercial radio gets worse, in in recognizing that commercial radio, most radio dials is going to be two thirds of the stations or more, it's a general discouragement for people to try their radio at all. Um, you know, and especially as listening moves to the car more so than at home and people are using their scan and seek buttons, if mostly what you come up with is the same old, same old and you're tired of it, you know, you just give up. And and while we're radio nerds and we're, you know, I'm the kind of person when I arrive in a new city, I immediately turn my radio to the left of the dial to go search, seek out those college and community stations that might be doing something interesting. We're outliers, and you know the folks who who have who are turned on to community radio and college radio are also outliers when it comes to the to the overall market. And you know we have to wonder: will people go to seek out that one interesting station if they're looking for a needle in a haystack, or would they even think it might exist at all? Right, unless they just happen to stumble upon it. Um, and so instead of a rising tide that raises all boats, uh, you know we sort of have a drought. <laughs> we have we have a leaky tub that lowers. We have a big all the anchor boats. that's dragging us all down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think I think that, that that's a uh, uh, an interesting viewpoint uh, to look at it. And you know, do you hear from you know many of your members, the people that you're supporting, are, are active working musicians, right, across uh, many different genres. What do you hear from them? Are they are they talk are they talking to to the uh, future music coalition they talking with you and what are they saying well so i mean i think that the enthusiasm for non-commercial radio is 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 really strong um not just because um not just because those are the only places that the records get played but because those are audiences that tend to be um really engaged audiences really curious and 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 folks who's um, engagement with music doesn't end with the passive listening on the radio, but you know they also buy records and go to shows. Um, non-commercial radio is great for that. Commercial radio could be that way again. Uh, we just get, we've just got to have some major systemic changes to get there. Um, yeah, what do you I, think the path to getting there is? Um, <laughs> you know, because I think about some. It feels so hopeless in a way. If, if there's already a situation where there's been so much consolidation and limited playlists. I mean, we're in a it, situation how does with, that change? With, with 100 years of broadcasting and now one quarter of it has been crappy. It's a pretty dispiriting <laughs> situation. I hear you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that 
in the same way that the the analog digital transitions that ha happen actually represent some exciting new opportunities for um, non-commercial radio folks, you know, like that are doing cool stuff with creating podcasts and creating um, uh, and making sure that they're they're getting a presence on the smart speakers and that kind of thing. I think that there could be room for more risk taking and more adventurous and 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 especially investment in local programming on the commercial side. Um, it just takes the um, the the courage to reject the dominant business models that have that are being imposed from the top, and really focus back in on what makes local radio so special the local element and the live element um i think that's that's got to be the path forward in terms of the regulatory and the policy path forward to get us there well acknowledging that we're in an environment with an fcc right now that is uh, that seems uh, poised to just give um, give the biggest uh, industry players everything on their wish list over and over again. Yeah, that's that's challenging. Um, but you know that's also a great reason to do everything that we can to pump the brakes mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and then start you know start asking for more. start start getting ambitious, start, uh, rather than just entirely um, like trying to hold the line on um, consolidation, we should be demanding more of the Federal Communications Commission. Uh, they work for us. They work for all of us. They work for our musicians. They work for communities. They work for for the listeners and the audiences. So Kevin Erickson, director of the Future of Music Coalition, what's what's number one on your list when uh, I won't name the the fantasy candidate in the White House in 2020, but uh, if there is an FCC that is that that you could pick up the phone and and talk to a commissioner, or or, or you know they they'd actually read the website of the Future of Music Coalition and care, what's what's at the top of the list? What what's a good change? Well, so first thing on the agenda has to be actually doing the studies that the courts have <laughs> mandated that the FCC do for like three times now. They've Science. said that we need. To yeah, we need to actually understand what's going on and what the, what the impacts of these changes have been um, on on viewpoint diversity, on ownership diversity, on um, and on communities, and um, and from there <laughs> we can start thinking about ways to do to undo that damage. Um, um, to make sure that the, that uh, commercial radio stations are abiding by not just not just like the baseline um, public interest requirements, but that you know they should be um, the the ability to have a commercial license on the public airwaves is an agreement between those commercial entities and the public, and they have to hold up their end of the bargain. You know, so I've, I've got kind of a political question for you, um, and it's more of like industry political than Washington political. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I wonder it all, you know, 
you're partnered with this, uh, the Future Music Coalition is partnered with Music First, which mm-hmm. also um, advocates on behalf of musicians. And they have uh, partners like the Recording Industry Association of America, right? Which is, you know, uh, the association of all the major labels, um, you know, plus many others. And, you know, and you're repre- you work with a lot of independent artists and smaller labels as well. And I, and I wonder, you know, taking this sort of stand um, w- against the wishes of at least many of the big radio players, um, I mean, does, does that put you in, in a funny position when it comes to, you know, the, the artists that you represent? You know what I mean? I, I wondered, you know, is, is there any worry that that, that that would cause commercial radio to retaliate in some way, you know, taking such a strong stand together? Yeah, well, I mean, that's why unity across the industry is so important. And that's why I'm really proud that we have um, so many diverse music industry players all lined up together to say this is not cool that we can't keep um, we can't keep moving this direction. Um, That kind of solidarity um, um, and, and, and show of unified support means a lot. So that means you've got like the, you've got the band that can tour stadiums and arenas as well as the artists who are touring, uh, you know, clubs and and going in to uh, perform live late at night at a community radio station. Yeah, yeah, you know, and 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 the re- the the there's so many diverse career paths and business models in the music industry today. There's just, it, it doesn't look like one thing. It can look like so many different things and different artists are operating at such radically different scales. But at the end of the day, everybody kind of needs the same thing. They need a, um, a marketplace that, um, where all of the different companies and organizations and um, partners that they work with to bring their work to the marketplace to connect with audiences um, are accountable and treat them fairly, um, and that's all we're asking for from 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 radio, right? Right? You know, like th- like this is this is a, a public good, and you got to hold up your end of it. So what? Future Music Coalition, which you are director of, Kevin Erickson, and yeah. Music First Coalition, together you've put together a campaign called Keep Local Radio Local. Um, tell us just a little bit about what it is and and what it helps people do. Yeah, well, you know, like, Future of Music has been involved in these issues, like I said, back to 2002. Um, this is the first time that it's been a real... Um, industry-wide effort. You know, the musicians' unions have been involved in this before, but now we've got the Grammys on on board um, as part of Music First. And and what we wanted to do was just make it easy for people to have their voice heard in this this process because it impacts so many different people um, for so many different reasons. Musicians, sure, uh, but listeners and um, local radio folks themselves. So we just built a simple little web portal at uh, keeplocalradiolocal.com as as a as a as a way of making it simple and easy to participate in this um, public comment process. Now, the public comment process 
technically closed on uh, May uh, 29th. Um, that said, you know, there's they don't turn it off. Um, the the FCC will still hold your comments in the docket, and will while they might not uh, consider it in the same way, it's still possible to get a submission in there. So, Kevin, in non-commercial radio, we've also seen a lot of consolidation. And Paul was talking earlier about, you know, how he likes to flip around the left side of the dial to hear some more unusual stations, some non-commercial stations. But but often we might flip around the left side of the dial and hear the same station over and over again because of consolidation in in both public radio and large uh, religious radio conglomerates. So can you just talk a little bit about what, if you have efforts related to non-commercial radio and consolidation? So I, I guess that um, we haven't addressed the non-commercial consolidation issue directly, and I don't believe anybody filing in this docket has, um, because the, the, the concerns are just so um, acute um, on the commercial side, and because non-commercial entities with the possible... With, yeah, I would say that non-commercial entities generally aren't coming um, all that close to the existing caps where they would be in a position to acquire more if the the rules were to change but i would say that it to the extent that you're that that is a concern that consolidation on the non-commercial radio side is a concern it's it tends to be marketplace driven and it and I think that you could make a strong case that it's the consolidation happening in the commercial marketplace and the way things that are trending towards um, these false economies of scale uh, in the commercial marketplace that uh, incentivizes and encourages and um, cements those kinds of centralization business models as sort of the way things are done in the business. Um, so the more that we can push back on commercial radio consolidation, I think it can help alleviate some of the concerns that might might be there on the non-commercial side as well. Jennifer, you, you specifically pointed out the religious broadcasters, which actually tend to have more money um, than you know, your universities or even public broadcasters. And certainly, as we all know, they there's a lot of pressure out there often uh, for colleges and universities in particular to sell their licenses to religious broadcasters, um, you know, and their ability to consolidate, you know, along the lines of like a K-Love kind of network. Um, their operations are very much more similar to a commercial broadcaster than they are to most public owners, public broadcasters there. So I suspect, you know, that is at least one factor to pay attention to if um, a, a, you know, religious broadcaster had the opportunity to increase its to share, increase its market, share yeah. you know, and, and able to uh, raise the money to, to really have, you know, more or an unlimited number of non-commercial stations in the market, what would that do to uh, some more vulnerable college stations in particular, it may be less of a threat to 
to at least stable community and public radio stations. Right. Where the board yeah, loves them. Yeah, that's a them. great point. Where the board loves them. Because the college radio stations are often the, the final decision of, of who sells them and why are some are outside of the realm of radio lovers, oftentimes yeah. we're finding. Yes, unfortunately. And, you know, and, yeah. and, 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 and I think that the that the 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 Communications Act of nineteen ninety six, which which sparked the first wave of consolidation and deregulation that is part of the pressure. That is why there is a market value to a college radio signal and why we don't see significant amounts of these sorts of turnovers prior to 1996. Yeah, and in case listeners are not familiar with the stories we're telling, on Radio Survivor, every every few months or so, we, we learn about and discuss on the show and on the website, radiosurvivor.com, another college radio station which might have a long history on the air. Um, being sold out from under the people who love that station uh, quite rapidly. There's there was another um, recent development on that front. I believe, right, Jennifer? Bad bad news for college radio lovers in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah, I know. I, I even hate to bring it up. Yeah, but, so okay. But yeah, <laughs> we'll just, but I mean, it's a case of uh, that which will be not be named. Okay. at the University of Evansville, and it was sold to religious broadcasters. There you go. And so, it is because of that yeah, market. It's not demand an academic conversation. That, that, it, that a, it has value. Facts. In in, the, right. in I don't know how much it was sold for, Jennifer, but was it was it in the neighborhood of millions? No. Oh, okay, it wasn't. Okay. How sad. Well, it's Evansville. No. We wish it, which, we which wish is not a top market. Yeah. How sad for the Evansville college radio lovers. And, and, you know, and I'll point out pending sale because, uh, right. you know, paperwork has just been filed, so. Well, I could bring this full circle, too, and say um, if, uh, like, one of the reasons that college radio stations have cited as their rationale for selling off their stations is that the radio medium medium is dying and there's no jobs there anymore well like the reason that there aren't any jobs right. in the way that there have been in the past has been because of consolidation and the layoffs that come along with consolidation no that's a very so, good point you know, i think kevin erickson of the future of music coalition if in case uh, listeners didn't hear what you said i'm going to repeat it college radio the you know the act the people running academic institutions who have the decision power at college radio have used the declining workforce in radio as an excuse to shut down their college radio stations. And your point is that we would have a healthy workforce. There would be plenty of jobs in radio if we hadn't gone down this consolidation path in the first place. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that that really provides some great historical perspective on... On, on that sad situation and yeah. um, and hopefully hopefully that tide can turn yeah I mean one of the things that we haven't hit on is like what like the the, the rationale that the um, that the commercial that the, the national the rational the National Association of broadcasters has put forward for this proposed change is that Radio needs deregulation to be able to compete with the alternative audio platforms that are out there, um, and you know, like like the the existence of Spotify and Pandora and this these this host of different audio delivery services means that the only way that radio can keep up is to allow more and more consolidation of ownership. By getting worse. By wow. getting worse, right? Right. Yeah. By emulating the worst aspects of those services, the lack of local content, the lack of local accountability, and their playlist-driven nature, right? Yeah. 
Um, but beyond that, but that's uh, the argument they're like, making. <laughs> that's the argument that they're making, right? Right. And the reality is that, like, those services, like, sure, there's competitive pressures that come with that, but those are different services. They can't do the cool things that radio can do. They can't do the things that we're at risk of losing. Yeah, which, yeah, especially uh, bring, in, bring in your city's cool artist into the studio to perform live is uh, a superpower of all radio stations. Right. At least ones that have local studios. Yeah, still, yeah. Yeah. Well, Kevin Erickson, director of the Future of Music Coalition, uh, thank you for joining us today on Radio Survivor. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. Keep up the good work, y'all. You know, it's interesting how many different stakeholders this affects, radio ownership affects, right? right. You have listeners, um, obviously, who, who should be primary in communities because they're real towns, real cities, real metroplexes. And then in that, right, we have we have musicians and artists as well, right? Because there's always been this kind of long-standing, uh, sometimes uneasy alliance between radio and musicians, where radio is a way for people to hear about your music, um, is a way for you to connect with listeners, for them to sometimes know where your concerts are going to be, you know, and, and as part of that, right, that's been about the music industry and artists supporting radio in turn, right, giving them free records <laughs> to yeah. play on the air, uh, to come into studios, to do uh, to do interviews uh, or to call in, right? There's, there's often been this sort of symbiotic relationship and, but we've seen ticket though, giveaways, you know, to giveaways, yeah. exactly. But we're seeing that you know to have that kind of relationship, it has to be perhaps a little more equanimous, right? There has to be give and take on both sides of the equation. And it sounds to me here, um, this isn't a, a case in which the music industry, across from independent to to big artists, are saying, "Well, hold on a second, maybe maybe more is going to be taken from us than than we're getting out of it." Well, and I think also. You know, so many people have realized the downside of consolidation and how it, it really has given radio a bad rap. Um, so it makes sense that a lot of people are coming together when, when once again, there's an opportunity for more consolidation to happen. Uh, I, I think more people understand now why consolidation has been a bad thing for many reasons. Yeah, I mean, you're listening to Radio Survivor right now, either on the radio or online. And I, I'm going to argue that the brand wouldn't even exist if 1996 Telecommunications Act hadn't changed radio for the worse, uh, you know, in increasing the decreasing the diversity in radio ownership, and then as a result, decreasing the diversity on radio itself what we hear, the people that are making it, everything gets a little more homogenous, a little less good. We heard Kevin Erickson, director of the Future of Music Coalition today on Radio Survivor, tell us about how uh, there was a recent study that country music stations, when they are consolidated and owned by less diverse uh, companies, end up um, having more men singing songs than women. And it's just like the, the examples are as diverse as the as music could be and that, of how it gets it gets worse when this happens. And that's fascinating yeah, to me. Yeah, it's disheartening. In, the, in how I think, you know, when we talk about consolidation, the effects that you can hear on air, often what we talk about is, right, a less diverse playlist. Playlists that don't reflect local place. Sucky music. As much. 
Or sometimes good music. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know that we, you know, I, I don't know that we want to go and say necessarily that the music, that we want to blame the music uh-huh. so much is that uh, what happens, I think, in the people experiencing it, I don't know that they go, this music sucks. I think what they, they say is, God, didn't I already hear that song? Mm. Haven't I heard this song too much? I'm tired of hearing them run these songs and artists into the ground. And it seems like consolidation often... It benefited some small subsection of artists, perhaps mm-hmm. big artists, at the expense of many more, right? The ones, you know, Led Zeppelin isn't hurting because of consolidation. They're still getting their royalties from getting played all the time, right? And, and top pop artists are not hurting necessarily, although they might also say, hey, you know, lay off a little bit. We don't want to make people sick of my, my, my big song either. But now it's interesting to me that how we're seeing, you know, the full spectrum of the music industry, not only sort of independent artists or more outspoken artists kind of come around to saying, whoa, enough is enough here. Right. Like this is as far as we want it to go, Um, you know, because I think that, that, you know, it is the occasion that that interesting new artists and interesting new songs sometimes do break through on, on commercial radio. But it seems as though that happens less frequently all the time and here we have an, a chance or we have this this proposal by the national association of broadcasters which could result in that happening even less right where where, where all the creative spark might be that that might be left is being squeezed out i think it's kind of what i see going on here yeah you know sh- shorter and shorter playlists um Less creativity, right? Fewer new, which means there's there's less room for for someone to take a risk on a new artist or a new yeah. track. When it seems like the safest route is to play the song we already know people like, um, you know, or that has already been proven in some other way, rather than saying, "Hmm, what happens if we add this song?" Because in the commercial industry, I mean, that's exactly how it happens. It happens song by song. Um, it you know it's it's not like there's just an art, an album sitting on the shelf and a DJ can go over pick it up and say hey how about we try track number three on this CD right or how about we try the B right. side of this single um, these decisions are made in very uh, slow and methodical sorts of fashions. Well, I also so oh go ahead Jennifer. Oh, it was interesting to me too that you know we talked about with Kevin Erickson about how this consolidation and less diversity on the commercial stations can can have an impact on the entire radio ecosystem as far as turning off listeners and and hurting you know non-commercial and maybe more adventurous radio stations right. uh, because listeners might just be tuning out you know increasingly tuning out to the radio because they're they're not finding things of interest right i was going to add to that uh that you know, uh, commercial radio, when it is better, improves non-commercial radio because uh, competition is it's good for it's good for culture. It's good for an art form. And, you know, there there I can imagine a time period, you know, let's say in the 70s and the 80s where non-commercial radio DJs would be listening to commercial radio, getting stealing the good ideas, you know, mocking the bad ones. There's sort of much more energy in in the in the culture when when there's more diversity when there's more people making radio it's just better for everybody even if it's not your cup of tea uh, yeah but in the 70s or 80s or 90s there wasn't a really good alternative for listeners mm-hmm. right it was basically i'm going to listen to my own 
uh, CDs, records, or cassettes, or I'm going to listen to the radio. Uh, now, with because they can choose from satellite radio, right. podcast, streaming radio, uh, you know, Spotify, Pandora, plus your own music library. If I think really it's the case, and, and I would love to hear from listeners, you know, how your listening habits are affected by. Uh, the fact that maybe a lot of the dial is of little interest to you or you hear repetition. We want to know what, what, what's it like for you? You know, do you sometimes not turn to radio because you're not sure you're going to hear something you want to hear? Drop us a line at podcast at radiosurvivor.com because I would say that, you know, that chases me away from the radio and I love the radio. Yeah. But there, but I might be out of town or in another, uh, you know, in a rental car uh, driving in a city where I, I've I've not been before, and if I don't get something interesting in that first spin of the dial, the radio might stay off, sure. and might not ever come back on for the duration of my stay, because you know, and often because it's it's not just me in the car, but there's other people who maybe like cut it with this, you know, cut it with the scan. Can't we just put on? Can't we just put on your phone, right? <laughs> Can't we just Bluetooth in and listen to a podcast or listen to some music because it, it sounds like there is nothing on the radio. Yeah, that would be an interesting little ethnographic study. You know, how, uh, how what do people do when they're scanning through and at what point do they give up and turn to some non-terrestrial radio alternative? Yeah, Edison Research has actually done some of this. Um, that they released recently where they had people uh, record themselves in the car on their commutes listening to the radio. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it was fascinating because, you know, a lot of people were just basically button on the scan button, button on the scan button. As soon as they heard a commercial hit and seek or hit and scan, mm-hmm. often in the middle of a song because they were tired of that song, um, you know, rather than really staying tuned in. And I'm not sure that that kind of behavior is is good for radio in general, whether it's non-commercial or commercial, you know, because you're really not having the opportunity to for someone to to capture their attention, in part because maybe you are not respecting their attention. Here on Radio Survivor, we've we've talked about uh, the impacts that consolidation has had on the culture of radio and the the quality of your listening experience. We've talked about it a lot with um, Dr. Christopher Terry, and those episodes are all available on the website, radiosurvivor.com. And, you know, pretty soon, the FCC is going to be back in court. Uh, There's going to be a hearing on the Prometheus lawsuit against the FCC, Uh, Prometheus being uh, an organization that promotes low-power FM, but has, in coalition with other groups, uh, challenged the FCC's uh, attempts and failures at uh, revising ownership rules. They'll be, FCC will be back in court trying to defend itself again. Right. And so we hope to have uh, Professor Christopher Terry coming on in the next few weeks to help to tell us what went on and what more will be happening in all of this. There's many sides to it and many dimensions. And, and one of those dimensions, as we mentioned earlier, is that uh, the FCC continues to put forward uh, attempts to further deregulate ownership um, but has been unable to defend those attempts in court with evidence and data. Yeah, it's a fascinating, uh, you know, you might have heard this story before that, um, you know, if you listened to, if you listen to non-commercial radio stations, it will often talk about how consolidation hurts the media. And then you might think, well, um, how much could it possibly have changed in the last 10 years? Things have been stalled because, because the data 
the the arguments that the FCC was using to lift the caps were uh, never hadn't stood up in court yet. So they've been trying. It's not for lack of trying that the media landscape might not have uh, deteriorated to the degree that that some some critics like us might have been uh, raising red flags, warning that this might these changes are coming. And I want to make one point, uh, not about this at all, okay. but as we go into June of 2019, we are celebrating 10 years as radiosurvivor.com. Mm. Well, uh, as we go in, we will also be celebrating four years of producing this podcast and radio show. And we will June. hit our 200th episode 200th milestone. Episode. So it's a pile of milestones happening in June of 2019. Um, and so we really appreciate everyone who has listened or gone to our website um, and read what we do. Uh, this is why we do it. We do it because we think it's important. We love radio. We love sound. But we also think it's important to help people understand and understand how we keep radio in particular of all forms and especially really creative forms, how we keep it vibrant and alive. Yeah. In, the, in this day and age is what we're dedicated to. So thank you, everyone. And uh, we'll certainly be throwing a celebration for our 200th episode coming up very soon. We're on episode 196 today. And, uh, you know, we'll also want to throw in that 10th anniversary in there. And we'll have another really big announcement coming up soon. So we'll just have to tell you to stay tuned for it. And you'll soon know what it is. Ooh, exciting. So if uh, listeners want to send us their feedback about today's program or anything else you've heard on Radio Survivor or just talk to us about radio, that email address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. You can find us on the social media websites that you use. We're there, too. Uh, you can also subscribe to this radio program as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It's always free. It always will be free. And the podcast uh, also sometimes we have some extra content. And if you want to find out more about how to support the work that we do, you can go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Eric. And thank you, Jennifer, for uh, joining us for another fantastic episode. Yeah, thank you. See you next week, everybody.